Good morning. Go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 16. It is on, we are going to be on page 970 if you've got one of our Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible or you need a, a new one, feel free to take one of ours with you. Page 970, Luke 16. We're going to be starting in verse 19. It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is where we're at as we've been walking through the book of Luke for some time now. And before we get into this text, I want to remind you of a a character that was actually mentioned by Jesus in last week's passage, John the Baptist. Okay, recall in your mind what you know about John the Baptist, all right? He, He shows up really early in the Gospels, right? He's a cousin of Jesus. He... Uh, was a little odd, a little eccentric. He wore camel hair. He ate locusts and wild honey. He lived in the wilderness. He was the last of the great old covenant prophets. And so he was kind of the hinge. He was preparing the way uh, for Jesus, a hinge in the redemptive story. And so Jesus mentions him last week. Uh, Jesus loved John the Baptist. In fact, he commended John the Baptist in Matthew eleven eleven. He said, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And when John saw Jesus for the first time, he proclaims, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so John was very bold. In fact, he was so bold, it got him into trouble. He, uh, he uh, essentially confronted and, and publicly rebuked Herod the Tetrarch for having an affair with his brother's wife, which landed him in prison. And it's interesting, while John is in prison, evidently this is the same guy that said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Well, while he's in prison, his circumstances evidently caused him to doubt. And so he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Are you really the Messiah? See, it's our human tendency to allow our circumstances to define ourselves often, and even more importantly, often our circumstances help us define who God is, God's character. We we look at God and we view Him through our circumstances, His character, His love towards us, we often view through our circumstances. And that's why I think often our relationship with Christ and our relationship with the bride of Christ, his church, often feels like a roller coaster because our circumstances are constantly changing. And so it's no wonder that often, and maybe you've experienced that when people go through trials, the tendency for us as humans is to pull away, pull away from God, to pull away from our church family. And it's because our circumstances have dictated how we view the world, how we view God, how we view ourselves. Uh, Let me give you a few examples. I think this is true if you've ever dealt with an addiction. Um, Often people who are dealing with addiction say things like, "I'm I'm an addict, I'll always be an addict, it's just who I am. And then they might think also, because I'm an addict, God must hate me. Or maybe the, the single mom who's struggling to make ends meet begins to think, you know what, I'm, I'm really worthless, nobody really loves me, and God doesn't care. Uh, people going through trials are not the only ones that allow their circumstances, though, to 
define their relationship with God. Think about the Pharisees. We've been talking about the war between Jesus and the Pharisees. How did the Pharisees view themselves? Uh, they, they probably thought, well, you know what? I'm important. I've got an important title. I'm rich. I'm powerful. And so God must love me. That was their mentality. And so Jesus in this parable, he flips all of that upside down. He reverses all of that in the parable of the, the rich man and Lazarus. See, listen, your circumstances don't have to define you, and they ought not determine how you view God, how you view his love towards you. Scripture doesn't dismiss your circumstances, okay? Your trials, they're, they're painful. There's real pain in there. But listen, and if you're taking notes, write this down. Your current circumstances don't tell the whole story, though. They don't tell the whole story. And I understand, though, that the, the more you're going through, the bigger the trial that you're going through, the more pain you're experiencing, the more difficult it is for you to see the big picture. And so let's pray that God would help us, that he would open our eyes as we walk through this scripture together. Father, we recognize that apart from your spirit, we are helpless to truly understand this text and the significance of it. I pray that you would open up our eyes to see, to see past our current circumstances and that we would get off of the roller coaster and that we would trust you no matter what we're going through. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we pick up in verse 19. This is Jesus primarily talking to the Pharisees. He says, There was a rich man who is clothed in purple and fine linen and who, is feasted, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was, a, was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and Cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may be warned, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, him, 
If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, remember, Jesus' aim in this passage is to expose the hearts of the Pharisees. And I really believe the, the reason that Luke recorded this passage and it's been preserved for us for now 2,000 years is because our hearts need to be exposed also. We all have the tendency to become more and more like a Pharisee if our hearts are not flooded with the gospel. And so Jesus here is aiming at people who are justifying themselves before God. Remember verse 15. The, the Pharisees, they thought, look, because I've got money, because I'm powerful, because I'm popular, God must love me. And so Jesus shares this parable and he contrasts these two men. The rich man, he's clothed in purple and fine linen. That was the, the color of royalty. It was very expensive clothing that he had on. Lazarus, he, He's clothed with sores, dirty, infected ulcers covering his body. The rich man, he's inside. He's feasting sumptuously every single day. Lazarus is on the outside, starving, just hoping to eat some of the scraps that are falling off the rich man's table, but nobody will give him any. Even the dogs are licking his sores. And this is probably not a sign of compassion from these dogs, by the way. Back then, they didn't have pets, or they didn't have dogs as pets, and so don't think like cute little Fido here. Okay, this is not like a little collie or a little cute little beagle. These are like, uh, think scavengers, street rats. And so Jesus is, is describing a poor man who nobody cares about. He's been literally cast at the gate of the rich man, and even the dogs are torturing him. He's trying to push him away, and he can't. And so the rich man dies, and he's buried. Okay, that's significant. He got a proper burial, probably had a funeral. The, the Lazarus dies, probably just thrown into a hole in a field, forgotten about. And there's one more contrast that it's easy to miss, but it's so significant. The poor man has a name, but the rich man doesn't. And all of the parables that Jesus shares, this is the only place where he gives a name to one of the characters. I think that's, that means something, because back then especially, their names meant something. Even today, if somebody knows your name, if, they walk, if, you, if you're a visitor and you walk in and somebody knows your name, that means something. There's a huge difference between me going to Starbucks and me going to Shiloh's. Okay? Starbucks has been around for a while. I've probably been there twice as much as I've been to Shiloh's. But I walk into Starbucks and every single time they have to ask me my name because I'm not really a name. To, I'm not a person to them. I'm just a number. I walk into Shiloh and, and Mackenzie's there as the barista and she doesn't have to ask me, my name. She knows me. I'm a person. And, and the experience is so much better. The coffee tastes better too. <laughs> the name is significant. Uh, Lazarus was known by God. Uh, in fact, the, the word Lazarus, in the, it's a Greek form of uh, a Hebrew name, Eleazar. And it means, he whom God has helped. Now, if you're just looking at his circumstances, you might be asking, really? 
I mean, how has God really helped this guy? His circumstances are, are awful. But remember, his circumstances don't tell the full story. The angel, they carry him away to Abraham's side, literally Abraham's bosom. Uh, this is the same language that's used at the Last Supper, where uh, you've got John, the Apostle John, who is on the, by the side of Jesus, leaning on his chest. So there's an intimacy that's there. The, the Abraham's side, was, it's a place of rest, a place of peace. It's a, it's a place of feasting. And so the rich man dies, and he, he ends up in Hades, which is literally the place of the dead or the place of the unrighteous dead. It was a synonym for hell. He's in torment here. And so just to point out here too, Jesus does not teach the theology of annihilationism, which is the theology that some people believe that once an unbeliever dies, they just cease to exist. So Jesus doesn't teach that anywhere in the Gospels. Uh, the rich man, he's in torment. Now, and now he's the one that's longing for the scraps. Uh, he wants just a, a drop of water off of Lazarus's his finger, but none will be given to him. And, and notice the rich man, he still doesn't get it. He, he still doesn't get it. He, he's in hell and he still doesn't get it. He's, he's still just as lost. He's still trying to order around Abraham and Lazarus like they're his servants. He's like, Abraham, Father Abraham, can you send your errand boy Lazarus to fetch me some water? I'm feeling parched down here. It's kind of the, the picture that you get. And, and notice that the rich man knows Lazarus by name. And so he recognizes Lazarus. He must, must have known at some point that Lazarus was outside of his gate, but he was merciless to him. And so now this merciless man is begging for mercy, longs for mercy. But notice he never asks for forgiveness. He never pleads for Abraham to allow him to come and join him by, uh, with Lazarus. He still doesn't get it. And Abraham, notice, his, notice the response from Abraham. I think it's significant that Abraham addresses the rich man as child. It was a, a term of endearment. It, it was, he was showing compassion to him, and yet his compassion doesn't change the rich man's current reality. And so he explains this reversal. He says, you've already received your good things, but now you're in anguish. Lazarus, he's already experienced his anguish, and so now he's going to be comforted. And not only that, not only will you not get a drop of water now, you will never be able to get a drop of water, he says. There is a great chasm between us. No one can pass between heaven and hell. And the rich man still doesn't get it. Again, he asks Abraham, can you send Lazarus on an errand, your errand boy, to, to try to warn my five brothers so they don't end up in this place of agony? And Abraham again says, no, they need to simply listen and heed to God's word, listen to the prophets. And again, the rich man, he doesn't, get, he doesn't believe that the word of God is sufficient, and so he pleads with Abraham again. He says, look, if my brother sees a dead man, who comes to them, that would be enough to convince them to repent. So he does get something. He does understand that, that repentance is required. Uh, and that also means that the, the ultimate issue of this rich man was actually not his richness. It wasn't his money. It wasn't the, the money wasn't the issue. It was the love of money that was an issue that 
caused his heart to not be repenting. Abraham responds with the final words of this parable, which are typically in a parable, the most important words are at the very end. So listen to what he says again. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And it's interesting, in the original language, it matches the description of the resurrection of Jesus here. And so Jesus is essentially saying, look, even if you came to the tomb and you saw the stone rolled away and you saw me and the scars of my hands and my feet, you still wouldn't believe. No miracle is going to convince you. If your heart is blinded and unrepentant, it doesn't matter if you see a miracle, you're not going to be convinced. And in fact, if you, if you go to John chapter 11, we see not a parable, but a real life story where, where Jesus literally raises a guy from the dead named Lazarus. And listen to the response after he raises Lazarus from the dead in real life. Uh, this is chapter 11, verse, starting in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And after some discussion, the Pharisees, uh, this is verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Clear miracle still wasn't enough. You see, People go to hell not because they lack information. Okay, God's word is sufficient. That's what Jesus is teaching here. They go to hell not because they've never seen a miracle. They go to hell because their hearts are worshiping another God. They go to hell because they are spiritually blind and unrepentant. And so these, the, this rich man, his brothers, they were, they were blinded by their love of money. That was their God. And no amount of evidence was going to convince them to repent. They needed a new heart. So the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is, is do we have a new heart? Have we truly repented? How do we know that we've repented? Uh, Jesus is teaching through this parable that we ought not look just simply at our circumstances, right, to, to diagnose whether or not we are accepted before God. Uh, maybe you're here and you're a little bit of a skeptic. Uh, you, you've said in your heart, look, I would believe in Jesus if he would just prove it to me, if, if I had some kind of evidence. I think Jesus is saying in this parable, look, child, you, you don't need new evidence. You need a new heart. You need a heart that recognizes that you can't justify yourself. You need a heart that recognizes that that your sin, that there's sin in your heart, you rebelled against God, and so you need salvation. You need a heart that, that turns away from that sin and fully embraces the gospel that trusts in Jesus Christ for salvation and follows him as your Lord. A heart that, that really believes that what he did on the cross is sufficient to pay the penalty for your sins, to reconcile you, you with God. And so the question we need to ask is, what does true repentance look like? What does true repentance look like? Well, true repentance always produces fruit. Going back to John the Baptist. Uh, back in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is preaching to the crowd of Jews that are coming to him to be baptized. And he says to them, he, he actually, he's pretty harsh with them. But in verse 8, he says, look, you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. He's saying essentially, look, just because you were born into a Jewish home doesn't mean that you're right with God. And that's true today, too. Just because you're born into a Christian home, kids, does not mean that you're going to be accepted by God. You need a new heart. You need a, a heart that repents. And so what does that repentance look like? It looks like it, well, it bears fruit. And he goes on. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so he's saying that, look, repentance includes fruit. There's going to be fruit that's produced. And so what does that fruit look like? The, the crowds ask him, then what shall we do? And so he describes then what this fruit looks like. He says, well, this is what it looks like. Whoever has two tunics or two coats is to share with one who has none. And whoever has food, do the likewise. And so true repentance, the fruit of true repentance looks like compassion. It looks like the love of Jesus. Jesus taught the same thing in Matthew 25, and I'd encourage you to turn there. Uh, you can turn to the left to Matthew 25, and, and starting in verse 31, uh, Jesus is talking about the judgment day, that there's going to be a day that we stand before God and we're going to have to give an account, and there's going to be a separation of the, sheep's, the sheep and the goats, right? So he separates those who are righteous and unrighteous. And this is what he says in chapter 25, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So this is the day of judgment. And before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him and say, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you and naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, listen to this, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. And then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer to them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And so what was the primary marker for separating the sheep and the goats, the righteous and the unrighteous? He separated based on whether or not they ministered to the least of these. They were separated by whether or not they had compassion. I want to make this very clear. You are not saved because uh, you, you care 
for the homeless or feed the hungry. Okay, that does not save you. You are saved because God opens the eyes of your heart and you repent and you believe in the gospel. But again, true repentance, what does it look like? Fruit is a result. Caring for the least of these is evidence of where your heart is at. It's evidence that you have a heart like Christ. The one who showed us the ultimate compassion. Compassion towards us. Jesus didn't stay at his table in heaven feasting, did he? He left the table and came to us, the poor, the lost, the blind, the sinners. And he showed us how much he loved us by going to the cross. And on the cross, he didn't just go through nails for us. It wasn't just physical torment that he experienced. He experienced spiritual torment. He experienced his father forsaking him on the cross. Essentially, he went through hell for us on that cross. And when you get how much he loves you, the depth of his love, that changes everything. That changes everything. When you understand that he was willing to go through hell for you, that allows you to breathe and rest no matter what situation you're in, no matter what trial you're going through because you recognize that your current circumstance does not tell the whole story. And so if you've come here this morning and you are going through a trial and you're just overwhelmed, I hope that as we sing about the gospel and we talk about the gospel that you would be reminded that there is more to your story. Christ loves you more than you could ever imagine. And maybe you're here today and you've experienced some success and you're in a really good place right now. I would challenge you during this time Don't look at your circumstances and your success and say, okay, God must love me because of that. Is there fruit in your life that shows that you've truly repented? Let's be a church that lives up to our name, that shows the fruit of repentance by being merciful in our everyday lives. Would you pray with me? Father, once again, I plead with you that your spirit would convict our hearts, that those in this room that think they're good with you because they've grown up in a Christian home or because they're, they're, they've experienced some success in their life, I pray that you would convict their hearts to recognize that ultimately we are only good with you if our hearts have been transformed by the gospel, that your spirit has invaded us and given us new hearts. I pray that we would grow in our compassion towards others. I pray that those who are, are suffering right now, that are going through trials and are overwhelmed and not, not sure how they're going to make it this next week, I pray that you would comfort them as you comforted Lazarus and that you would remind them that that is not their whole story, that you love them more than you, they can ever imagine. Help them to feel your presence 
in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. As we move into a time of communion, communion is here for us. It's a gift to us that we would be reminded of what Christ did for us on the cross and what he went for, through for us.